right, good morning, everyone. Um, as many of you know, uh, we have been working our way through a sermon series uh, that has stretched sort of through the overarching uh, story of Scripture, and it, we've been calling this series, Every Story Whispers His Name. And uh, as we've been working our way through this series, we've been dropping in and select um, events in biblical history, and now we've uh, arrived at the section of the Old Testament known as the prophets, more specifically in the prophecy of Isaiah. And uh, our passage today is probably one of the most well-known passages from all of the prophets, and that's because of its popularity as an Advent or Christmas text, rather. Um, but yeah, this is one of those texts that, that really clearly proclaims the name of Jesus from the Old Testament. And it's, it's hard. Uh, yeah, like when I, when I hear these words, I start singing Handel's Messiah in my head. Um, but even though these words are familiar, generally speaking, uh, the, books, the, the books of prophecy in the Old Testament are generally not very familiar with many people. And there's a few reasons for this. Uh, the first is a problem of context. Um, all of, I think all of the texts that we've been in so far in the Old Testament have, have come out of um, a narrative portion of Scripture where there's chronological telling of events. But in the prophecy of Isaiah and in many of the other prophecies, they are not a chronological account of events. Rather, they're a collection of things that the prophet said throughout the course of his lifelong ministry, and they're kind of uh, mashed together in one continuous writing. Um, and so we don't have many of the surrounding details uh, supplied in the book itself to bring context to what Isaiah is saying. And so if we really want to understand it, we have to do the hard work of going elsewhere to supply the context for these words. Um, and the second uh, thing that makes it a little bit difficult for, for many of us to really get into prophecy is that um, is the problem of genre. We don't really understand what to do with biblical prophecy because I think we don't totally understand what it is. Um, we can often easily make the mistake of um, equating biblical prophecy with a more modern uh, understanding or definition of that word, and, and it takes on sort of a mystic quality, right? Like fortune telling or um, reading a crystal ball, but that's not what's happening in biblical prophecy. The biblical prophets weren't mystics. They were ordinary people chosen by God uh, to be his mouthpiece in a specific time and place. And moreover, their prophecies are not... Um, super specific or like obscure predictions of events in the future um, sort of pulled out of thin air, but rather they are updated practical applications of what God has already told his people he is going to do. And this isn't to take away from the divine uh, quality of these words or, or the inspiration of the prophets in any way, because these are words given by God to his people, but um, hopefully that just um, helps us get, do away with some of the sort of the weird voodoo magic quality of our thinking about prophecy. Um, 
Secondly, because biblical prophecy is updated, practical application of what God has already revealed, and because God is continually about the work of bringing about his redemptive plans, these prophecies have real-time practical significance uh, far beyond their original audience. Um, yeah, certainly the original, the first fulfillment of these words was at the birth of Christ um, when he first came into the world. But remember that the Israelites in the Old Testament, uh, the Israelites in the Old Testament, they had an expectation about the Messiah that he would be um, an earthly king in the line of David, that he would come along and he would be a warrior and he would defeat their earthly enemies and he would sit on the earthly throne in Jerusalem. And we know that not, that's not what happened when Jesus came. We now know that. And so um, this prophecy, in a very real sense, are, is still awaiting its complete and final fulfillment in Christ's second coming. And so we can sort, we could say, in a sense, that this prophecy is still alive. Um, and of course, it is obviously a most appropriate text for this first Sunday of Advent as we light the first candle of Advent known as the prophecy candle, and we highlight the theme of the hope that we have in Christ, uh, not only in his first coming to earth as a human baby, but also in his second coming as we look ahead. Um, and so let's dive in. Um, our passage this morning, we, we're going to begin obviously with some context because this prophecy, we need to figure out what we're talking about. Um, this passage is a beautiful message of redemption and hope, but the first thing that we need to recognize about it is that it is totally out of place. Um, if we read chapter 8, the preceding chapter, or we read the second part of chapter 7 that immediately follows this text, we realize that we're, this, this text is a, a tiny little island of hope and happy thoughts in a sea of uh, prophecy about judgment and just really sort of dark and, and depressing things. And so it's a little bit out of place. Um, and the reason for that is that Isaiah's ministry is taking place during the reign of King Ahaz in Judah. Um, and you can get more information about that by reading 2 Kings 16, but the long and short of it is this. Ahaz is a bad king. Uh, he has repeatedly broken covenant with the God of Israel, um, even to the point of sacrificing his own son to pagan gods. Um, so he was a bad dude. And then when the northern kingdom of Israel teamed up with Syria to come against them, instead of turning to God for help, he turned to the ascending Assyrian Empire. And uh, he formed an alliance with them, and he received their protection, but at a great and unforeseen cost. Um, and if you were around this summer, uh, this past summer, when we preached our way through the Elijah series in 1 Kings, uh, you may remember the, the adage, as goes the king, so go the people, right? Unfaithful kings lead unfaithful people. And so the state of the kingdom here the state of Judah that Isaiah is ministering in is not good. The people have almost all turned their backs on God and are worshiping the gods of the land. And this 
this type of idolatry, this exchange of the worship of the creator for the worship of the created thing has natural consequences. And we see it again and again. These people are walking in deep darkness and gloom, is what Isaiah says. Um, Romans 1 describes it this way. It says, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal men and birds and animals and creeping things. And the writer of the book of Kings says that because they went after false gods, they became false. So Israel at this point, or Judah, who, who uh, Isaiah is writing to, they have rejected God, and in so doing, they have rejected truth. And as a result, they were confused and foolish and made terrible decisions that came along with terrible consequences. So this is a kingdom and a culture in decline. And the more they brought awful consequences on themselves as a result of their foolishness, the more they blamed and rejected God and the further from him they fell. And so the cycle went on and on and on and on. And Isaiah is part of a small faction of uh, people in Judah, faithful people in Judah, still committed to the worship of the true God. And so God tasks Isaiah with going to his people, confronting his people, warning them that God was growing weary of them rejecting him and then blaming them, blaming him rather for the consequences of rejecting him. His patience was, was wearing thin. And sooner or later, he was going to have to fulfill what he had said all along was that he would have to teach them a lesson. He would have to show them what it actually looks like when he turns his back on them. But they refused to listen. And so their fate was sealed. And um, in stages, Israel and then Judah are all carried off into exile as their judgment for this. But God loves his people so much that he cannot help but to remind them that even though they've rejected him time and time again and pushed him away time and time again, he is refusing to give up on them. So this text is a love letter to people living in exile. And in it, we see the incredible fatherly heart of God on display as he tells Judah that though this coming discipline is going to be difficult, it's going to be hard, it's going to be painful, it's going to be dark, this isn't the end of the story for them. All right, so that's the context. We're ready to dive into our text, but it's only seven verses, so don't worry. Um, it also divides up very easily into uh, three, uh, three sections. It begins by telling us basically what God is going to accomplish, uh, secondly, it's, it talks about how God is going to accomplish these things. And thirdly, it addresses the question of why God is doing these things. All right, so the first verse um, is sort of an overview. It's, it's, an, uh, it's a unit to itself, and it's sort of an overview of what God is ultimately going to accomplish. And what it says here is that ultimately he's going to take them out of their gloom and darkness and transfer them into the glory of his presence and a restored relationship with him. Um, notice that Isaiah uses uh, the perfect tense here 
uh, he switches partway through. He says at the beginning, he says, there will be no more gloom. There will be no more gloom. But then he says at the latter time, he has made glorious the way. Right? He doesn't say he will make glorious or he's going to make glorious. He says he has made glorious the way. And this is common in biblical prophecy. And I think what Isaiah is communicating by this is that because this is the word of the Lord, uh, because it is the word of the Lord, it is absolutely trustworthy. It is as good as done. It's a huge theme in the book of Isaiah. So trust the word of the Lord. You can trust the word of the Lord. Um, and I think also another thing in this first verse, I think that, that is very interesting, is we see where, where he refers to Galilee as Galilee of the nations. And I think this is a hint at the scope, the actual scope of the redemptive work of God. Um, two things to know about Galilee. Um, Galilee first is, it's the first region that was uh, sacked and annexed by the Syrian army and carried off into exile. And when the Israelites that lived there in the region of Galilee were carried off into exile, we are told that um, Edomites, um, as well as other people groups, move into the area and settle there in their place. And then we learn later that when Israel uh, comes back to the land, they never fully reclaim this area, the region of Galilee, and so it remains um, a, a, a place where there's just lots of different people groups, right? It's not exclusively um, an Israelite region. And secondly, about 700 some odd years later, God, the region of Galilee is where Jesus begins his ministry. And while Jesus obviously began his ministry to the Jews, it extended, as we know and we all benefit from, to people of every tribe, tongue, and nation. And so, yeah, verse 1 is a broad overview of what God is about to do, what he's about to accomplish. Um, and then the next few verses, 2 through 5, um, are an expansion, basically, of that. They get into more specific detail about what exactly God's going to do. And this gets more to Israel's sort of immediate context. So verse 2 says that the people who walk in darkness uh, have seen a great light, and those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them a light has shone. Okay. So here again, we have this language of darkness and light. So we need to ask, what does he mean by this? And what is darkness? Um, darkness isn't actually a thing in and of itself, right? Darkness is a description of the absence of light, and remember, uh, Isaiah is writing to people who are either in exile or about to be in exile. So people in a faraway land, cut off from their God, their families, their homes. Um, exile in the ancient Near East was a common military practice, and it functioned as a form of psychological warfare. Right? When the superpower of the day moved in and conquered a new land or kingdom, um, they would carry off a, um, a crippling percentage of the, the people in that area and then disperse them all throughout the empire. And uh, the point of this was to strip them of their own national identities and to break their spirit. Right? Exile was designed to kill off hope. People without hope aren't a threat. People without hope don't 
uh, organize and revolt or rise up. But God says to his people in exile, his people struggling to maintain uh, any sense of hope, any sense of, um, yeah, hope that they could ever return to their land, that they would ever have what they once had, um, that they would ever live in peace with God again. God says, don't give up. Hope is coming. All right, so God is bringing hope, but then in verse 3, we see that he's also bringing joy. Verse 3 says, you have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice with you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. You got to remember, these are people in exile. These are people who have lost everything. Right? They've lost their families, they've lost their homes, they've lost their lands. And remember that for Israel, land had unique significance. Um, for them, uh, their land was an inheritance from God forever. That's what it was supposed to be. And it was the way that he mediated his blessing to them. By giving them land, the idea was that they would never again be slaves. Right, They would be able to provide for themselves and grow um, a kingdom and an economy that could defend itself and provide for itself. And the idea was like their freedom and their provision was tied to the land. And now they don't have that anymore, right? So without the land, they are destined to be beggars and slaves for time immemorial. <laughs> and their children too would have no hope for a future other than that. But God is saying here that when he does his great work of deliverance, whatever that's going to be, there is going to be no lack. There is going to be no wanting. And Isaiah uses this imagery of a harvest time where there's just, there's plenty, there's more than enough to go around. This idea that um, when God acts on his people's behalf, that as hope is fulfilled, everything that was lost will be re restored to them and more. He will bring such an abundance of joy that everyone will be filled to the brim and there will be no room left for discontent or for uh, despair. Their hearts will be truly satisfied. Um, and Isaiah goes on. Along with hope and along with joy, God is bringing peace. Right? We see in verse 4 that he is going to overthrow their enemies. And we see there's this reference to Midian there, right? So for the yoke of his burden uh, and the staff of his shoulder and the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as in the day of Midian. And this is a throwback to Judges 6 and 7, um, where God has called Gideon to lead his people in battle against the Midianites who have assembled this coalition of armies uh, to come against them and wipe them out. And Gideon has been selected to lead Israel, and he has about... 30,000 fighting men, and he goes to scope out the enemy armies. And it says in Judges 7, verse 12, Gideon sneaks down and under the cover of darkness to uh, survey the enemy army, and it says, the Midianites and the Amalekites and all the people of the east lay along the valley like locusts in abundance. And their camels were without number as the sand that is on the seashore in abundance. So as far as Gideon was concerned, there were billions of them, right? Like this was an absolutely hopeless fight. And God tells Gideon, your job is simply to trust me. The victory is my job. 
And so he pairs Gideon's army, already severely outnumbered, at 30,000, down to 300 men with trumpets. Right? And in Judges 7.22 tells us that when they blew the 300 trumpets, the Lord set every man's sword against his comrade and against all the army, and the army fled. So, God, this is an example. The reason why Isaiah used this, this is an example of God um, undeniably fighting on behalf of his people, um, winning a battle for them that they could never win on their own, that there would be no hope of winning. Um, what he's saying is that when God comes, he will come in power. And even more than that, as we see in verse 5, it says every boot um, and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. That's an interesting comment. Right? What he's saying is that it's more than simply defeating their enemies at, in the moment or at the time. He's, he's putting an end to war. He is taking even the reminders of slavery and oppression, and he's putting them to good practical use elsewhere because they're not needed anymore. Um, all right. So we've seen that what part of what God is up to is he is going to bring hope. He's going to bring joy and he's going to bring peace to Judah and to Israel. The question is, how is he going to accomplish all of this? You have to remember, they're in, in, out in exile. They have nothing. Like They have no hope of assembling a fighting force of any kind. They have no um, means of producing um, an armory of any kind. Like they, the, the thought of this would be really hard for them to wrap their brains around. And uh, so Isaiah goes on, and he rolls out this means of God's redemptive plan. And what is it? For to us a child is born. A child is going to be born. And this child is going to grow up to be this king over all kings. He's going to be uh, revered. He's going to be referred to by these titles that Isaiah uses, right? Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. But how can this be? Like any Israelite would know that these are titles that could only be rightfully attributed to God himself. So this wasn't going to be just any ordinary human baby. This baby was going to be God himself in the flesh. We cannot overestimate how shocking that revelation would have been to Isaiah's original audience. You know, we get used to hearing these things, right? We, we can just kind of, we hear that God became flesh, right? Became a man, entered into the world, um, and we just, yeah, well, like we, we know these things. We don't think much of it, but his original audience, like this would have been mind-blowing. So God himself is going to take on human nature. But he's not going to come as some superhero. He's not going to come as a Spartan warrior. Right? He's going to humble himself to the most lowly of human experiences. He's going to be born as a human baby in a barn somewhere or stable. And somehow through this act, he is going to bring this unassailable hope, this incomparable joy, this eternal peace uh, 
to his people. You know, I mentioned earlier that um, this text is a love letter to people in exile. And so maybe at this point you're still thinking, what does this have to do with me? Um, Look, the Bible says that we too are exiles. We are dwelling in a land of deep darkness, a land that is not our final home. Can you feel it? Right? The separation from God has left humanity stumbling and fumbling around in the dark, trying to find a way forward. And this past year, and there's a lot of jokes and memes about how bad 2020's been, but all kidding aside, right? If this past year has accomplished nothing else, it has stripped us of the luxury of ignoring the fact that this world is groaning. We have been inundated over and over and over again with reminders that nothing is the way that it's supposed to be. There are people who have lost everything. There are people who have died alone. There are people who haven't seen their loved ones in months and months on end. There are people dying of overdoses and suicide and record numbers. The evidence is all around us. We are living in a land of darkness. But hope is coming. Joy is coming. Peace is coming. And that's what this text tells us. And one final thing. We've seen what God is going to accomplish, and we've seen how he's going to accomplish it there. But now we have to ask the question, why would he go through all this trouble? Right? That's a question that we really have to wrestle with, I think. What is it about Israel? What is it about us that makes any of us worth God going through everything he went through to reconcile us to himself. The very last line of our text says, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. And I think that's, that's easy to kind of gloss over. But the reality is that that word, that zeal, is the same word um, that, that we have elsewhere when we talk about God being a jealous God, jealous for his people, right? We, we can tend to conflate that with our uh, modern understanding of the word jealousy, which, which usually conjures up, you know, ideas of pettiness. Um, yeah, pettiness and resentment and things like that. But um, this word really, ultimately, I mean, it means passionate commitment to guarding a most prized possession. So really think about that. If the zeal of the Lord will do this, what he's saying is that his passionate commitment to you and to me and to Israel as his most prized possessions is what is driving him to do this, right? We 
we read verses like, like John 3.16 and we can rattle it off, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. But really think about that. You really think about the weight, about the gravity of that statement. God so loved the world that he gave his only son. So why did God do all this? Why did Jesus allow himself to have done to him all of the shameful, terrible things that he allowed to be done to himself? The king, the king of heaven, the king of creation, to be spat on and beaten and whipped and abandoned by everybody and then nailed to a cross to die. It's because he loves you and me with a love that is unfathomable to our tiny human brains. He doesn't love us because we're worth it. We are worth it because in his infinite grace, he has set his love on us. And so, this Advent season, take the time to wrestle with those things. Take the time to really honestly, without distraction, feel the weight and the sting of living in exile. Because it's from that place that you can really be prepared to also truly taste and to experience this, this unassailable hope, this incomparable joy, and this eternal peace that we enjoy, now only in part, but one day in full, because of this unfathomable love that God has for you and I. All right, let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for the amazing gift of grace that we have in this child, Jesus, that we've read about today. Lord, thank you for the hope, for the joy, for the peace that we can cling to in the midst of this darkness, Lord, that we live in. Thank you that in him we can begin to taste and to see how deep and unimaginable your love for us actually is. Help us to truly know this love, Lord. Help us to cling to this love no matter what to cling to the hope that we have in Christ in his perfect spotless righteousness we pray amen